female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He ripped her face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Yes. No, yeah. I didn't say that. Yep. <laughs> repeat it back to... Are you... You say repeat it back to you and then you don't let me talk at... How am I... Okay. Yes, I'm... Jesus Christ, that's not what I said. Okay, alright, I gotta go. I've got, I've got to record a podcast. Yes. Fine. All right. Jesus. Okay. Yes, I love you too. All right. Bye. Sorry, guys. Um, I was just on the phone with my bank. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Man. It is the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals, whether it's biting, scratchings, maulings, or clawings. You know we're here to talk about it. My name's James, I'm your host, and we are back today with a brand new episode of Man Eaters. It is good to see you. It is good to hear you. Actually, I can't hear you. You can hear me, uh, which is not great. Uh, Yeah, hope everyone had a great week last week. We're on to episode 83, I believe. Uh, Part 4 of the Tigers of Chowgar. We are finally completing this story, which has been over a year in the making, I would say. Uh, yeah, started the story way back in 2023, finally got back around to it at the beginning of this year, and I'll tell you what, it is a wild story. I will recap it once we get into the main uh, story, but before we do that, I just really quickly want to give a quick shout out to a, a very special uh, listener of the show. Um, as I mentioned on the pod last week, we have a, webs- we have a website, and um, on said website, you are now free to uh, purchase um, merchandise if, if you so choose to. I want to give a shout out to Chris Laprade, uh, or, or Laprade, I'm not sure how you would pronounce that, but he, he, first order, first order, he ordered, I'm going to tell you what he ordered, Chris has ordered a unisex soft style t-shirt with the Man It Is logo, a scratched up mash, mash t-shirt, uh, sorry, cap, baseball cap, and of course the Man It Is mug. My, um, I also ordered some merch for myself just to see what the quality was like, and it arrived a few days ago, and I've got to tell you, the t-shirts, the, boy howdy, are they comfy. They, I know this sounds like disingenuous i've ordered t-shirts through like um you know uh what do you call it like fulfillment centers before and the the quality hasn't been great these ones the cotton is so nice so i really recommend it i i bought a large i probably should have gone up to an extra large it's a little bit tight um but yeah that man the it's 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 great the mug i love the mug i brought the mug into work and everyone's like what's man it is and i'm like guys you've i've worked with you for like three years you don't know what man it is is don't you listen to me all the time on your way to work? And apparently they don't. They listen to better shows. I didn't think that was a real thing, a better podcast than this, but apparently it is. Um, so yeah, thank you, Chris, uh, Yeah, for, for buying some merch, being order number 00001. What a legend. Uh, so I really appreciated that. So thank you very much. And if you're interested in getting some Manitas merch, you can head to the website as well. The link is in the description of this video. Uh, video, it's not even a video. The link is in the description of the episode, wherever you're listening. You can click it, buy some things. It's fantastic. Helps me out, helps you out. And yeah, once again, the shirt, super comfy. I'm going to wear it again today. I love it. Okay, that's enough shameless self-promotion. Let's talk about scary tigers. Yeah. Okay, so where we left off, Tiger of Chowgar, initially thought to be just one tiger, um, had killed dozens of people in this region of India, and Jim Corbett had been brought in to find it, and at the beginning of our story, we talked about how he found two tigers, and he shot them, and he was hoping that he shot the mother, because he believed that was the most dangerous one, uh, unfortunately, he didn't shoot the mother, he shot the sub-adult cub of the mother, now, he was depressed about this mistake, because he believed that by killing the cub and not the mother, he had basically signed a death warrant of dozens of other people who would die after this uh, had happened, and he did believe that for a while. He then realized after a while that a lot of the victims of the tiger attacks were were escaping from the initial attack, right? So, 
a woman would be attacked and scratched up really badly, but she wouldn't be killed outright in the attack. Uh, and Jim says that, like, uh, you know, one in a hundred people will survive a tiger attack and go off. And then they die later on, but still. Uh, he believed that th that must mean that before the point where he shot the sub-adult cub, that the sub-adult cub must have been assisting heavily in the killing of the people. So he wasn't too upset that he'd shot that tiger, because it did mean that it was a designated man-eating tiger, uh, and it was, yeah just as responsible for the deaths as its mother was. But the mother is still at large, so he went looking for the mother, didn't have much luck, did a little bit of a side quest where he shot a bear, um, that was in the second part of the, uh, the series that we did a few weeks ago, and then last week, he, uh, he went to a place, he went to a village where the tiger had attacked someone, and he stayed up on a rock, very uncomfortable, soaking wet, and a tiger showed up, and he shot it, and it ran away. So he assumed he missed it, so he was very upset. And then the tiger came back, and he shot it, but it, it ran away, and it, it, he thought that he missed it again. And he was very embarrassed, he thought that, wow, like, I've just shot two bullets at close range to a tiger in pretty good daylight, and I've missed both. How embarrassing, how am I going to go back to the, to the village and tell them that if I did shoot anything, I probably accidentally just shot the buffalo that was the bait for the tigers. Um, but then when he, when he did go back to the, uh, to the village, kind of hat in hand, tail between his legs, he discovered that he in fact had killed not just one, but two tigers had appeared uh, and he shot both of them. They'd run away and died from their wounds. Um, he went to inspect those tigers' carcasses and one of them was like an old female tiger. He was feeling really pumped that this might be the one. This might be the tiger of Chowgar that had killed uh, dozens of people up to this point. Uh, but he examined them, and unfortunately, based on the pug marks of both of the tigers, he concluded that neither of them was the tiger of Chowgar. The tiger of Chowgar was still, uh, still out there. And after that point, once again, Jim had to leave the uh, region. He's, uh, you know, he's not built. He's not able to spend his entire life out there in the wilderness, in the villages of India. Uh, he has other things to do. Um, so he got called back out. But that's where our story sort of concluded. He got called back out of the region, uh, but he did promise that he would return. And uh, yeah, that's where our story is going to continue right now. So please sit back, relax, and listen to the final part of the story of the Tigers of Chowgar. So it is now the year 1950, and it's March, and Jim is now on a tour across the Man-Eaters territory. He gets an urgent request from a man named Vivian, who is the district commissioner, and he was asked to travel to Kalar Agar, where he was stated that he would wait for him. The distance between Nanital, which is where Corbett was, and Kalar Agar is around 50 miles. Mr. Vivian and his wife were staying at the Kalar Agar Forest bungalow when Jim arrived in time for breakfast a day after receiving Vivian's request. The Vivians informed Jim over breakfast that they had arrived at the bungalow on the afternoon of the 21st of March, and that one of the six ladies who had been cutting grass in the bungalow's complex had been slain and taken off by a man-eating tiger while they were enjoying tea on the veranda. Now, with haste, rifles were taken in hand, and Vivian, together with a few other members of his crew, followed the quote-unquote drag until he discovered the dead woman nestled beneath a shrub near the base of an oak tree. Later, when Corbett looked at the ground, he discovered that the tigress had disappeared down the slope as Vivian's group approached and had stayed 50 yards from the kill amid a tangle of raspberry bushes for the duration of the procedures that followed. For Vivian... A makan was erected in the oak tree, and for his staff, two more were erected in trees next to the forest road that went 30 yards above the kill. As soon as they were ready, the makans were occupied, and the party continued throughout the night, but they were unable to catch a glimpse of the tiger. Now, a makan, for those of you who might not know, is a platform that's erected in a tree, which was originally used for hunting large animals, and is now used for watching animals in wildlife reserves. Uh, it's typically, that term is typically only used in South Asia. So, the woman's body was taken out the following morning to be cremated, and the same evening, the tigress killed a young buffalo that had been tied up on the forest road not far from the bungalow. The Vivians sat up over the buffalo the next evening. 
Since there was no moon and the light was fading and surrounding objects were becoming hazy, they initially thought it was a bear when they heard and then saw an animal approaching to the kill. Despite this unfortunate mistake, their very athletic efforts could have, been al- could have allowed them to bag the man-eater because both the Vivians were excellent shooters with rifles. District Commissioner Vivian and his wife departed from Kalar Agar on the 25th of March, and the buffaloes from Dalkinia came the next day. Corbett tied them up every few hundred yards down the woodland road, as the tigers now seemed to be amenable to finding this kind of bait. The tiger avoided touching the bait for three consecutive nights as she passed a few feet from the road, but on the fourth night, three of the buffaloes at the bungalow were killed. Upon inspection, the carcasses in the early, sorry, upon inspecting the carcasses early in the morning, Corbett was disheartened to discover that the buffalo had actually been killed by two leopards that he'd heard howling above the bungalow the night before. It was obvious that the leopards would kill Corbett's three remaining buffaloes if he did not shoot them, so he hunted them while they were sunbathing on some large rocks above the kill and shot them both dead. Corbett did not like the idea of firing in this area for fear of frightening off the tiger of Chowgar. The forest road that originates at the Kalar Agar bungalow travels several miles straight west through stunning pines, oak, and rhododendron forests. These forests are a home to a plethora of wildlife, including pigs, sambar, and kakar, also known as barking deer, as well as an abundance of birds, in comparison to the rest of Camoan. Corbett had two suspicions that the tigress had killed some sambar in the area, but he was unable to locate either of the two dead animals despite finding bloodstained spots where the animals had been killed on both occasions. Corbett spent all of his daylight hours for the next 14 days in the jungle or on the forest path where only he had walked. Only twice did Corbett come close to the tigress during that time. When Jim visited the remote village on the south face of Kalar Agar Ridge, it had been abandoned the year before due to the man-eater predation. Corbett took a cattle track that crossed the ridge and descended the far side to the forest road on the way back. However, as he approached a pile of rocks, he suddenly felt threatened. The forest road was around 300 yards away from the ridge, The track left the ridge and descended sharply for a short distance before veering right and running diagonally across the hill for a hundred yards. The rock pile was located roughly halfway along this section on the track. The pathway curved sharply to the left beyond the rocks and then descended to meet the forest road a hundred yards further down the path. This was the first time Corbett had hesitated to pass the rocks despite having travelled down this track numerous times. Corbett would have, had to ne- would have needed to navigate through several hundred yards of dense undergrowth or take a wide detour around and above them to avoid them. The former option would have put him in great danger and the latter option would not have given him enough time as the sun was already setting and Corbett still had two miles to go. Jim had no choice but to confront the rocks whether he liked it or not. Corbett was able to overlook the dense undergrowth to the left of the track and focus all of his attention to the boulders on his right, since the wind was blow- since the wind sorry, was blowing up the hills. He had to traverse a distance of 100 feet to leave the danger zone, and Corbett covered this distance on foot, stumbling along the precarious face to the rocks with guns slung over his shoulder. It was an unusual manner to move. If anyone could have seen him, they would have laughed. Jim has had these kind of uh, supernatural fears every now and again, and they've always sort of treated him well. Every now and again, he uh, he just gets a sense that something could be watching him, and more often than not, he's he's correct. He uh, I don't know what you would call that a sixth sense potentially. Um, whatever it is, uh, it served him well, uh, and this was one of those times where he just felt like something's probably in here. I'm going to be really careful. So past the rocks, 30 yards away, was an open glade that began on the track's right side and stretched 50 or 60 yards up the hill. A ring of bushes protected the glade from the rocks. Kakar grazed in this glade. Now, Corbett saw the tiger 
before the before the tiger could see him, and out of, out of the corner of his eye, he caught a glimpse of her. She raised her head upon seeing him, and as Corbett was not glancing her way and was proceeding slowly, the tiger remained motionless, as these creatures often do when they believe they are unobserved. Corbett noticed that the kakar had dropped her head and was again clipping the grass as he arrived on the hairpin curve. Corbett had just passed the bend in the hill and was strolling up the track when the kakar came running up the hill, barking wildly. Corbett returned to the bend in a few swift steps and saw a movement in the bushes on the track's lower side just in time. It was clear that the deer had seen the tigress, and the track was the only place she could have seen her. Before continuing on this way, Corbett needed to conduct an investigation. The movement he had observed may have been produced by the tigress, or it could have been the result of a bird passing by. The red clay that made up the track had been drenched by a trickle of water that was emerging from beneath the boulders, creating the perfect surface for the appearance of tracks. Corbett had left footprints in this damp clay, and now, over these footprints, he discovered the splayed-out pug marks of the tigress from where she had leapt from the rocks and pursued Corbett. However, after the Kakar noticed her and raised its alarm, the tigress departed the track and went into the bushes where Corbett had noticed the movement. The tiger was definitely well-versed in the terrain, and since she was robbed of the chance to kill Jim at the rocks and the first hairpin bend due to the presence of the Kakar, she was likely scuttling through the thick undergrowth to try and catch up with Jim at the second bend. It was now no longer advisable to continue on this route, so Corbett followed the Kakar up the glade and descended via open terrain to reach the forest road before turning left. If there had been enough light, I think Corbett would have defeated the Tigress that night because the circumstances were all in his favour once she left the safety of the cliffs. He was as familiar with the terrain as the tiger was, and although the tiger had no reason to doubt his intentions towards her, Corbett had the benefit of being aware of her objectives quite explicitly. Even if the odds were on Corbett's side, the late hour of the evening prevented him from taking advantage of them. Corbett had already mentioned that the senses that alerted him to imminent danger in other places He doesn't go into detail in his book other than to say that his senses exist and that Corbett is unable to describe how it works. This time, however, Corbett had not seen or heard from the tigress, nor had he received any hint from a bird or beast that she was nearby. Nevertheless, Corbett was positive that she was hiding amongst the rocks to attack him. Corbett had spent several hours exploring the jungle that day, covering miles of unmarked territory without experiencing any fear. However, as he approached the ridge and saw the rocks, he became aware that they posed a threat to him. This feeling was further reinforced when he heard the Kakar alert the locals and noticed that the man-eater had left pug marks on his footprints, indicating that he was not alone. I also uh, just really quickly want to say, I think I made a mistake at the beginning of this story. I think I accidentally said that the year was 1950. It's actually 1930. I just misread that. Sorry. Sorry, I'm not perfect, okay? So, in his book, Corbett actually says that he wants to provide an understandable and comprehensive explanation of his first and last contact with the tiger for those of his readers who have been patient enough to follow him in his story. And I think that works really well. For those of you who have been patient enough to go through all four parts of the story, uh, here's an understandable and comprehensive explanation of the first and last contact with the tiger. So, 19 days after his arrival in Kala Aga on April 11th, 1930, the meeting took place in the early afternoon. At 2pm on the same day, Corbett had left. When Corbett came upon a large group of men who had been out gathering firewood at point at one point, sorry, at a point one mile from the bungalow, where the road crosses a ridge and goes from the north to the west face of the Kalar Agar range. He had the intention of tying up three buffalo at specific locations along the forest road. Amidst the group was an elderly gentleman who gestured towards Jim and pointed him towards a 
cluster of young oak trees situated approximately 500 yards away from his location. The old man claimed that the man-eater had murdered his only child, an 18-year-old boy in that thicket just a month before. Since Corbett had never heard the father's account of his son's death, he told him his version of events while he sat smoking on the edge of the road, pointing out the location of the boy's death and the location where everything that remained of him was discovered the next day. The old man angrily claimed that his son's death was the result of the 25 men who had been out that day looking for firewood. They had fled, leaving the young boy to be killed by the tiger. Screaming that he had heard the tiger snarling and told everyone to escape with their lives, some of the men who had been there that day denied that the boy had caused the stampede and thereby the death of the others. The old man was not satisfied with this, saying, You are grown men, and he was only a boy. You ran away, and he was killed. He shook his head. I'm sorry for asking the questions that led to this heated discussion, Corbett said, more out of deference to the old man than of any concern for any benefit he would do. Corbett said he would tie up one of his buffaloes near the spot where his son was killed. Corbett added, giving two of the buffaloes to the party to take back to the bungalow. So, Corbett followed, leading the remaining buffalo. A footpath began near where they had been sitting, and it went down to the hill to the valley below, and then zigzagged up on the opposite pine-clad slope to join the forest road two miles on. The path, the path passed close to an open patch of ground that bordered the oak thicket in which the lad had been killed. On this patch of ground, which was about 30 yards square, there was a solitary pine sapling, which Corbett cut down. Corbett tied the buffalo to the stump, set one man to chop a supply of grass for it, and sent the other man up an oak tree with the instruction to strike a dry branch with the head of his axe and call out loud, as hill people do when cutting leaves for their cattle. Corbett then took up a position on a rock about three feet high on the lower edge of the platform. The ground was three side, well, the ground was on three sides and relatively open. The man on the tree was to his left, and the man cutting the grass had been in front of him and the buffalo, which was now acting uneasily, was to the right. The man on the ground had made several trips with the grass he had cut, and was shouting and singing lustfully. Lustfully. Weird choice of words there, Jim. Corbett stood on the rock, smoking, with his rifle in the hollow of his left arm, when all of a sudden, Corbett realized that the man-eater had arrived. Beckoning. Desperately to the man on the ground to come to him, Corbett whistled to attract his attention and signaled him to be quiet. When taking up his position, Corbett had noticed that the further side of the rock was steep and smooth, that it extended down to the hill for eight or nine feet, and the lower portion of it was masked by thick undergrowth and young young pine saplings. It would have been difficult, but quite possible, for the tigress to have climbed the rock, and Corbett relied for his safety on hearing her in the undergrowth should she make an attempt. Corbett had no doubt that the tigress was attracted, as Corbett has intended it should be, by the noise of the men that were singing, and had come to the rock, and that it was while she was looking up at him and planning her next move that Corbett had become aware of her presence. His change of front, coupled with the silence of the men, may have made her suspicious. After a lapse of a few minutes, Corbett heard a dry twig snap a little way down the hill. Thereafter, the feeling of unease left him, and the tension relaxed. An opportunity had been lost, but there was still a very good chance of his getting off a shot, for she would undoubtedly return before too long, and when she found the men gone, she would probably content herself with killing the buffalo. There was still about four or five hours of daylight, and by crossing the valley and going up the opposite slope, Corbin should have been able to overlook the whole of the hillside on which the buffalo was tethered. The shot, if Corbin did get one, would be a long one, from about two to three hundred yards, but the two seventy-five rifle Corbin was carrying was deadly accurate, and even if Corbin only wounded the tigress, he would be able to follow the blood trail which would be better than a feeling about for her in hundreds of square miles of jungle, as Corbett had been doing for so many months. The men posed a challenge. It would have been tantamount to suicide to send them back to the bungalow by themselves, so Corbett was forced to keep the two men with him. 
After tying the buffalo to the stump so that the tigress could not remove it, Corbett left the open area and retraced his steps to execute the plan that he had laid out. This involved attempting to get a shot from the hill on the other side of the valley. After walking about a hundred yards, Corbett came to a ravine. The path went into very thick undergrowth on its far side, so he decided to take it on. He followed the ravine down to where it met the valley, worked his way up the valley, and picked up the path on the far side of the undergrowth. The steep ravine was about ten yards wide and four or five feet deep. As Corbett descended into it, a nightjar fluttered off a rock on which he had placed his hand. Observing the location where the bird had risen, Corbett noticed two little eggs. One was round and marble-shaped, and the other was straw-coloured with rich brown markings. Remembering that his egg collection, which apparently he has an egg collection, was lacking in nightjar eggs, Jim decided to gather them, and he put them in his hand, using some green moss for protection. Since the water that rushes down all these hill ravines in the rain had worn the rock off as smooth as glass, Corbett handed the rifle to one of the men, and sitting on the edge, proceeded to slide down. As Corbett went down the ravine, the banks got higher, and 60 yards from where Corbett had entered it, he came out on a steep drop of about 12 to 14 feet. When the two other men leapt in the air and landed one on either side of him, his feet had barely touched the sandy bottom. They asked Corbett, very agitated, if they had also heard the tiger. Although in reality, he'd not heard anything because his clothing was scraping the rocks as he slid down the ravine. The men replied that shortly after he stepped off the ledge, they had heard a deep-throated growl from someone nearby. They could not pinpoint exactly where that sound had come from, and so they jumped down the hill as well. The only, and incredibly inaccurate, inaccurate, inadequate explanation that Corbett could provide is that the tigress had been following them since they left open ground, and upon realising they were headed down a ravine, it had moved ahead and taken up a position where the ravine narrowed to half its width, and that when she was about to charge Corbett, he had vanished from view down the slide, and she had unintentionally let out a growl of frustration. This is not a very satisfactory explanation, unless one assumes without justification that she had chosen Jim for her dinner and had no interest in the other two men. However, it is possible. The wall of overhanging rock came to an end 12 or 15 feet from the fallen tree, and as Corbett approached the end of the rock, his feet making no sound on the sand, he very fortunately noticed that the sandy bed continued around to the back of the rock. Behind the three of the men, standing in a bunch, there was a smooth, steep rock, a wall of rock that was about 15 feet high, slightly leaning over the ravine, and a tumbled bank of big rocks that was about 30 or 40 feet in height. The sandy bed of the ravine was approximately 40 feet long and 10 feet wide. Corbett glanced over his right shoulder as he moved away from the enormous boulder and met the tigress's face directly. The sandy bed behind the rock was fairly level. To the right was a smooth slate that was about 15 feet high and inclined slightly outwards. To the left was a steep bank that had been scoured out and was also about 15 feet high, but it was overhung by a thicket of thorny shrubs. And at the far end of the slide that had resem- and at the far end was a slide that had resembled, though it was slightly higher than the one that Corbett and the men had slid down. Corbett, in his book, says he would like to paint a clear picture of the situation. The tigress lay on the sandy bed, bounded by these three natural walls, which measured about 20 feet in length and half that in width. Her head, elevated a few inches off her paws, was eight feet away from Corbett. On her face was a smile like the one that appears on the face of a dog that's come home to its master after a long absence. Two ideas quickly popped into Corbett's mind. First, he needed to initiate contact, and second, the motion needed to be executed carefully, sorry, and second, the motion needed to be executed carefully so as to not frighten or unnerve the tiger. 
if the tiger attacked him or the other men before he could get his rifle in position, all three of them would surely die. With the safety catch of the rifle off, he was holding the gun diagonally across his chest in his right hand, and he needed to swing the muzzle around three, qu- three quarters of a circle to bring it to bear on the tiger. One hand had begun to swing the rifle very, very slowly, almost imperceptibly, until the stock touched his right side after a quarter of a circle. He then had to extend his arm at this point, And as the stock cleared his side, the swing continued very slowly until his arm reached its maximum length and the weight of the rifle started to tell. There was very little distance for the muzzle to travel, and the tiger, who had never once looked away from him, was still staring up at him with a satisfied expression on her face. Corbett was unable to determine how long it took the rifle to complete the three-quarter circle, He was unable to follow the barrel's movement because he was locked with the eyes of the tiger. But, finally, it seemed as though the swing would never end. Corbett pulled the trigger as soon as the rival was pointing at the tigress's body. Corbett imagined the trouble he would be in if this was one of those fairly common situations where a trigger was pulled and the rifle failed to discharge. And if it hadn't have been for the recoil and the exaggerated noise of the shot in that small space, Corbett might have thought he might have been stuck in one of those horrible nightmares where the guns do not fire. However, luckily, it did. The two men who were following Corbett a few yards behind stopped when they saw him stop and turn his head. They knew instinctively that Jim had seen the tiger and judged from her behavior that she was close at hand. One of the men said afterwards he wanted to call out and tell Corbett to drop the eggs and get both hands on his rifle. The tiger remained perfectly still for a noticeable fraction of time and then very slowly her head sank on her outstretched paws while at the same time a jet of blood came spurting from the bullet hole. Corbett knew for sure that this was definitely the Chowgar tiger that had now been dispatched to the happy hunting grounds even before he looked at the pads of her feet. Three things, each of which would appear to have been a disadvantage, were actually in Corbett's favour. These were, A, the eggs in his left hand, B, the light rifle Corbett was carrying, and C, the tiger being a man-eater. If Corbett had not had the eggs in his hand, he should have had both hands on the rifle. And when Corbett looked back and saw the tiger at such close quarters, Corbett would have instinctively have tried to swing around to face her, and the spring that was arrested by his lack of movement would have inevitably had been launched. Again, if the rifle had had not been a light one, it would not have been possible for him to have moved it in the way that it was imperative for Corbett to move it, and then discharge it at the length of his arm. And lastly, if the tiger had just been an ordinary tiger, not a man-eater, it would, on finding itself cornered, have made for the opening and wiped the men out of his way. To be wiped out of the way by a tiger usually has fatal results. Corbett admits to being superstitious as his brother sportsman. For three extended periods spanning over the year, Corbett had now tried and failed to get a shot at the tigress. Now, within a few minutes of having picked up the eggs, his luck had changed. While the men took a detour and went up the hill to free the buffalo and secure the rope, which was needed for another more pleasant purpose, Corbett climbed over the rocks and went back up the ravine to return the eggs to their rightful owner. The eggs, which had been kept safely in the hollow of his left hand and kept safe with that moss, were still warm when Corbett placed them back in the small depression in the rock that served as a nest. A half hour later, When Corbett went by that way once more, the eggs had disappeared beneath the pensive mother, whose colouring precisely matched matched the mottled rock. Even though Jim knew the exact location of the nest, it was difficult for him to tell her apart from the surroundings. The buffalo, having been cared for for months, had become so docile that it trailed the men like a dog. It came scrambling down the hill beside them, sniffed at the tigress, and then settled down to chew on the cud of condiment on the sand as the men shackled it to the sturdy pole they had cut. 
The three men were heavy men, two of whom had grown accustomed to carrying heavy loads from childhood, and all three of whom had been hardened by a life of exposure. Yet the task that was ahead of them was a Herculean one. Corbett had tried to persuade one of the men to return to the bungalow to get assistance to carry the tiger, but neither men would hear of doing so. With no one would they share the honour of carrying the man-eater back to the party. The path they had come down was too narrow and too winding for the long pole to which the tigress was now tethered. As a result, the process straight up the hill through a tangle of briar and raspberry bushes, leaving behind some of their clothing and skin, which made bathing painful for several days. The men stopped frequently to catch their breaths and adjust the pads to prevent the pole from biting too deeply into their shoulder muscles. When the three disheveled but very happy men carried the tiger into the Kalar Agar forest bungalow with a buffalo the following morning, the sun was shining on the surrounding hills. Over the hundreds of square miles of mountains and valleys that the Chowgar tiger had ruled for five years, no one had been killed or injured since that evening. At the very beginning of the story, we mentioned how there was a war map with pins indicating where victims of the tiger had lived and had been killed. Well, on this war map of Eastern Kamoan, Corbett had placed a second cross, two miles west of Kalar Agar, with the date April 11th, 1930, written beneath it. The tiger of Chowgar had become a man-eater because of a few flaws, which had prevented her from killing many of the people that she'd attacked on her own since the day she had been denied the help of the cub Corbett had accidentally shot on his first visit. The tigress's claws were broken and brushed out. One of her canine teeth was broken and her front teeth were worn down to the bone. This is a very common occurrence in big cats that Corbett takes down. It's reticent of the uh, leopard of Rudra Prayag and the Champawat tiger, both of whom were forced into man-eating after their regular uh, methods of killing their regular prey had become impossible to follow. At the end of the day, the tigers of Chowgar were a pair of man-eating Bengal tigers, which consisted of an old tigress and a sub-adult cub. For over a five-year period, the two tigers killed a reported 64 people in eastern Kumoan division of Uttarakhand in northern India, over an area spanning 1,500 square miles. That number is disputed by the locals in the area and Jim Corbett himself because as we said before, for whatever reason, the death toll does not include victims who were attacked by the tiger and died from wounds later on, as so many of the female tiger's victims were towards the end of its life. Jim Corbett, as we know, probably the most prolific of all big cat hunters in history, had finally taken down the tiger of Chowgar. It had been a mammoth task, it had taken years, dozens of people had died, and he had multiple close encounters, many of which could have very much ended with him being the deceased party and not the tiger. But after all was said and done, Jim Corbett could finally take a deep breath and say that the tiger of Chowgar was dead. And there you have it, folks. Part 4. The finale to the incredible story of the Tigers of Chowgar. Uh, Jim Corbett, certainly an incredible man. Uh, a conservationist as well, let's not forget. Uh, you know, when he did the autopsy, or the necropsy, or whatever you call it, of the tiger, found all those injuries, the broken teeth, the broken claws, the, the front canine teeth worn down to the bone. Um... And, you know, realize that this happens to a lot of tigers that become man-eaters. Uh, deer. It's not easy to kill a deer. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to kill a deer just with your bare hands. Not easy to do. People? A little bit easier for a tiger, and so that's what happens. Uh, yes, and unfortunately, Jim doesn't make any, like, claims that those, uh, injuries were caused by a human. For example, the Champawat tiger, its teeth were shattered when it was shot in the head by another hunter years earlier um and so you know it's humanity's fault that that tiger became a man-eater but for the tiger of chowgar it just seems to be a case of uh, old age 
The tiger lived longer than a lot of tigers are supposed to. In fact, he says that from the pug marks, it's probably the oldest tiger that he'd ever tracked in his life. Um, very sad, 60, at least 64 people had died from that attack, but we know that the number is slightly higher. It's probably closer to 80 or 90. Um, yeah, an incredible story. Thank you so much for uh, listening with it for the, like, for the last month. Uh, really appreciate that. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with uh, the scratch of the day and some other fun stuff. All right, go and do a wee. And we're back. Oh, really quickly, uh, before we move on, just want to just apologize for the audio uh, quality last episode. So last episode during the scratch of the day segment, um, I was trying to like play a video clip and I basically just got lazy. Instead of taking the audio and putting it in post, I just lift up the microphone to try and record the audio straight from the computer. And when I did that, um, I must have knocked the cable loose because basically it just recorded through the MacBook speakers for pretty much the rest of the episode. Um, so sorry about that. It sounded awful. But the good news is I'm like, oh, okay, this microphone was worth the money I spent on it, which was a lot. So that's good. Um, yeah. Speaking of, I think I need a new microphone because this one is it's starting to cut in and out quite a little bit. So, uh, yeah, go to the Patreon, hey? <laughs> uh, help me buy a new microphone. That sounds that sounds good, right? Okay, let's move on, folks, to the next segment. Of course, it is the Scratch of the Day. In today's Scratch of the Day episode uh, segment, we have... Quite a long article. So this this uh, is an article from Texas Monthly. I'm pretty much just going to read it outright because it's a great article. Uh, it's by Peter Holly, uh, and it was published on the 7th of February, so quite quite recently. The title says, His best friend was a 250-pound warthog. One day, it decided to kill him. It's a really interesting story. I've had a little glance through. Um, so we're going we're gonna to go through. But yeah, thank you to Peter Holly for writing this for the Texas Monthly. Um, the subtitle reads, Austin Riley spent decades raising exotic animals in the Texas Hill Country. In a split second, the animal he thought was his best friend changed his life forever. We're going to read this right now. It's quite a long one, so saddle up. We, might only, we may only get through this one story, but it's quite interesting. So, um, here we go. Where are we up to? Okay. <clears throat> By the age of 30, a time when most people are just beginning to think about their mortality... Uh, I'm 30 and I'm also thinking about my mortality, correct. Austin Riley had already conquered his fear of death. He'd come exceedingly close to dying on multiple occasions, including a few months before his first birthday, when doctors discovered a golf ball-sized tumor growing inside the infant's skull. He would go on to spend much of his childhood in and out of hospitals, enduring high-risk brain surgeries and grueling recoveries. Then, in his mid-twenties, he was nearly killed by a brain hemorrhage that arrived one night without warning, unleashing the worst pain he'd ever felt. He emerged from that experience reborn, feeling lucky to be alive, and convinced that his life had been spared by God. Very unlucky chap so far. So, as he sat in a pool of his own blood on a beautiful October evening in 2022, he couldn't help but acknowledge the morbid absurdity of his current predicament. He'd spent decades conquering brain injuries only to be killed by, by doing mundane chores on his family's 130-acre hill, hill, hill Country Ranch in Bourne. Quote, After all I'd been through, I just couldn't believe that this is how it was going to end. As he slumped against a fence, his mangled body began to shut down. Austin's mind went into overdrive. He thought about his girlfriend, Kennedy, whom he'd never get a chance to marry, and the children he'd never be able to raise. He thought about how much he loved his parents and how badly he wished he could thank them for the life they'd provided. He thought about the land before him, a valley accentuated by crimson and amber foliage that seemed to glitter in the evening light and realized it never had seemed more beautiful than it did in the moment. This is really well written, buddy. Good job. But mostly, he thought about the animal that had just used its razor-sharp, seven-inch tusks to stab him at least 15 times. The attack had shredded his lower body and filled his boots with blood, and left him with gaping holes in his torso and neck. Had another animal been responsible, Austin would have considered it a random attack, 
But this was a pet he'd trusted more than any other. His lovable, five-year-old warthog, Waylon. It wasn't just an attack. As far as Austin was concerned, it was a murderous act of betrayal. One that shattered everything he thought he knew about the deep bond between man and pig. (laughs) For years, that animal trusted me every day, and I trusted him, Austin said. I put my blood, sweat, and tears into his life, and he decided to kill me. Austin who spends most of his days on his own, working with his hands, feels like a throwback from another era. Ruggedly handsome with a five o'clock shadow and a head full of unkempt brown hair, he sounds like me, and strutting confidently in a beaten up boots and wrangler jeans, he looks like he could have stepped out of a 1970s Marlboro ad. Though he's partially paralyzed in his left side from a botched brain surgery decades earlier, he's still, quote, farm boy strong. When it comes to animals, a softer side emerges. In his polite Texas twang, the 32-year-old talks lovingly about caring for an ostrich or a warthog, as matter-of-factly as most people talk about feeding a cat or a dog. He has a wide circle of human friends, but an even wider circle of animal relationships, many of whom he addresses with human names, such as Elmer and Susan. Quote, People are so mean to each other for no reason. But animals, they've always felt peaceful to me, he told me last month as he fixed a fence on the edge of his family's ranch, keeping one eye on an anxious herd of kudu upset by the presence of his all-terrain vehicle. And unlike people, they almost always give back what you put into them. Animals have been a part of Austin's life for as long as he can remember. Because of the threat of a seizure stemming from a traumatic brain injury, Austin needed nearly constant supervision growing up. He wasn't allowed to play organized sports, nor could he roughhouse at the swimming pool each summer or attend sleepovers at a friend's house. Without regular access to a normal social life, he became socially withdrawn and isolated. He did have access to something that other children lacked, however, exotic animals. While other kids had cats and dogs, Austin had a pet ostrich, a white tail and fallow deer, hogs, a mastiff, a lab, a dash hound, all of whom followed the little boy around the ranch. Austin's father, Shane, spent much of his career working in oil and gas when Austin was young, but his passion was for his ranch, which he stocked with unusual animals from faraway places. After Austin was born, Shane turned his hobby into a business, breeding and selling exotic animals, typically to buyers in Texas. After Austin's second brain surgery, his parents decided to relocate to their hill country homestead full-time. He was never inside and he didn't like to play video games, Gail Riley, Austin's mother, recently recalled. He wanted to be outside with the animals, hanging out, playing hide-and-seek, learning how to feed them and care for them. Austin loved the animals, and the animals always seemed to love him. But there was one animal that Austin poured more of himself into than any other. Waylon. Their bond formed on a close, on a cold December night in 2017, seconds after the tiny warthog took its first breath. The piglet's mother had died in labor, but Austin immediately assumed her place, cradling the hamster-sized infant in one hand and a bottle of milk in the other. He moved the animal into his parents' home, creating a makeshift nursery out of a plastic container, hay and baby blankets. Eventually, the weather outside warmed, and Austin built the warthog a small wooden house beside his parents' home, where the pig was able to spend his days gaining strength and roughhousing with the family's bulldog. Austin decided to name the rambunctious warthog as a homage to another unruly figure, outlaw country legend Waylon Jennings. <laughs> Always eager for his own company, Waylon enjoyed following Austin around the family ranch and falling asleep on his chest after feedings. He loved red apples, rough belly scratches, and tender massages on his hardened, bony snout. Before long, the pig and the brawny farm boy were inseparable. I just kind of became his parent, his dad, really, Austin said. Early on, I'd take him with me through the drive through at Whataburger. He'd sit in the front seat, happy as can be. Whelan soon grew to be 250 pounds of pure protein, 
as Austin likes to say, more than an average-sized NFL linebacker. By then, Austin had moved him to a large pen a few hundred yards away from the family home. On particularly beautiful days, he liked to lie on the ground in the enclosure, listening to sports radio and watching the clouds pass by. Inevitably, Waylon would lie down beside him, gingerly resting his enormous wart-covered head on Austin's thigh. They could remain that way for five or six hours at a time. Pigs, as any experienced livestock handler will tell you, are often the most intelligent animals on a ranch, and Waylon was no exception. He could follow basic commands and knew his own name. When Austin wasn't paying attention, he enjoyed digging his snout into his owner's back pocket and grabbing a hold of pliers that Austin always carried with him. Instead of giving the tool back, Waylon would run to the other side of the pen and play keep away for as long as Austin would chase after him. The notion that a warthog could be friendly, like a sidekick, can be traced to Pumbaa, the, lovely li- the lovable Lion King character known for popularizing the phrase Hakuna Matata, a Swahili expression meaning no worries. On the ruthless African savanna, however, where warthogs are native, they exist in an almost perpetual state of worry. Their wariness and quick trigger has helped turn them into formidable opponents for some of the world's most fearsome predators. Adult warthogs can reach speeds of greater than 30 miles per hour. Even when caught by a lion or a leopard, a warthog proves a formidable opponent with its knife-like lower tusks protruding from their muscular jaws like blades on a scythe chariot. They are known for being intelligent and resourceful. Warthogs that live near human hunters adjust their behavior accordingly, trading their daytime foraging schedule for one that takes place at night. Their combination of ruggedness and adaptability partially explains why, unlike so many other African species, warthogs are not endangered. 9,000 miles away, on ranches in Central and South America and South Texas, they're becoming more popular as pets and hunting targets. Like their European cousin, the feral hog, they are prized by hunters for their delectable meat and the challenge involved in acquiring it. For individual owners, meanwhile, they are a low-maintenance exotic pet. For both groups, one of the animal's enduring appeals is that despite their menacing appearance and deadly hardware, they typically display limited aggression towards humans. Many have escaped captivity and have begun to breed in the wild. Ironically, experts say, a reputation for docility can be very a very can be the very quality that makes a particular animal dangerous. Their behavior isn't easy to predict, says Tina Claudia Barber, associate vice president of animal care and welfare at the Dallas Zoo, which has four African warthogs in its Giants of the Savannah exhibit. Unlike domestic animals, which have been bred for generations to exhibit behaviors that humans deem favorable, wild animals are capable of dramatic shifts in behavior, even when they appear tame. In the Dallas Zoo, personnel never encountered the beasts unguarded, exercising protective contact, a form of interaction that ensures there is always a physical barrier, such as mesh wire, between an animal and a human. It's tempting to anthropomorphize wild animals, she says, To think that a long-standing bond between an animal and a human has the power to override deeply held instincts, well, that's just wishful thinking. Warthogs aren't predators, so they don't necessarily seek out fights. But if they do feel threatened, they'll use their speed and their agility and their tusks to defend themselves quite spectacularly, Cloud Up Barber said. Low to the ground and agile, this animal is capable of thrashing its head back and forth at a rate that can be hard for the human eye to register. Adding to their terror is the reality that a warthog stab wound isn't a clean form of penetrative trauma. The tusks hooks uh, the tusks hooked design ensures that they even that they cause even more damage than coming out as they do going in. Asked what she'd tell someone planning to add a warthog to a private collection, Coulter Barber offered a simple piece of advice. Don't do it. After particularly brutal days at the ranch, whether he's laboring through freezing weather or has spent hours corralling an unruly animal, Austin likes to sum up his struggle with a single semi-playful expression. Things got western. 
Austin says as he reserves the term, a rhetorical attribute to the rugged cowboy culture that so many rural Texans still embrace, from moments when the shit hits the fan. The most quote-unquote western five minutes of his life began without much warning. The warthog had appeared to be his typical friendly self one October evening at dinner. He greeted Austin at the front gate, hap- front gate, happily accepted some scratches, and then trotted beside him as the two walked to a nearby feeding trough. About 20 minutes after he'd arrived, Austin had just finished feeding Daisy, a pot-bellied pig he'd owned since she was a piglet, in an adjacent pen. He entered the warthog enclosure and was walking towards his all-terrain vehicle parked at the entrance of the pen. Suddenly, his right leg crumpled behind him and he was tumbling forward, landing some 15 feet away. As he gathered his bearings, Wayland's bulky, grey head emerged from a swirling cloud of dust near his feet. Before Austin could stand up and run, Wayland thrust his face between the ranch's lower legs and began violently swinging his tusks back and forth. One tusk stabbed Austin twice in the right calf and another stabbed him once in the left calf. His right leg was gashed from the knee to his upper thigh, an injury so wide that Austin was able to put his hand inside it later. He remembers the sensation of cool air hitting warm muscle and the realization that blood was pouring out of his jeans and filling his boots. He knew his parents were almost certainly eating dinner indoors a quarter mile away and nearby ranches were likely too far away to hear his cries. He screamed anyway. For a split second, Austin thought the entire incident might come to an abrupt end, that Waylon had merely decided to deliver a forceful message. This is my pen, and I am the man around here now, in the only way he knew how. But a momentary glimpse of the warthog's narrowed, rage-filled eyes dispelled that notion. As he attempted to scoot backwards, Austin realized Waylon wasn't stopping. The warthog was barreling forward, attempting to pin his odor to the ground, Quote, he was in murder mode, Austin said. Before Austin could fight back, Waylon had hooked his owner four more times in the upper left leg and the genitals. Several more stab wounds to his upper right leg followed in rapid succession. Reflexively, Austin attempted to gouge out the warthog's eyes, but was blocked by his bony facial armor. After Wayland gashed his abdomen three times, Austin tried to put the animal in a headlock that quickly backfired. That's when Wayland jerked his head upward, plunging a tusk into Austin's voice box, leaving a quarter-sized hole in his neck from which a piece of an artery dangled like a grisly necklace. Quote, At that point, I just knew I couldn't let him hit my head or get on top of me, Austin said. That's what I kept thinking. Somehow, when he most needed it, Austin caught a break. Lying on his back and bleeding out, he might have looked dead to Waylon. The warthog relented momentarily. Pumped full of adrenaline, Austin staggered to his feet and clambered halfway up an eight-foot fence using a foothold. It would take five tries to swing his body over the top. Once outside the pen, Austin made a disheartening discovery. His phone had fallen out of his back pocket during the attack. Afraid that he'd lose consciousness soon and with no other way to reach safety, Austin realized survival depended on him re-entering the pit with the beast and crossing 20 feet of blood-soaked dirt to retrieve his phone and call for help, all without Waylon noticing. Once Waylon had trotted a little ways in the other direction, Austin seized his opportunity. After climbing down the fence, he dragged himself over to his phone and then stumbled to a nearby gate. Slipping past it with moments to spare, Austin collapsed on the ground as the warthog lunged at him from the other side of the fence, threatening to break through. He almost looked like he was possessed, like he'd turned evil. Austin knew that his survival was far from assured. His service rarely worked near the back of Wayland's pen, but on this day, he was shocked to find a single bar of coverage. For Austin, it felt like a miracle. When his dad picked up the phone moments later, Austin told him he was, quote, bleeding out. Shane knew his son wasn't joking or being dramatic. Like most ranchers who work closely with livestock, Austin had been bitten, poked, and cut too many times to count. 
Shane knew that his son, who preferred to wrap a paper towel and some electrical tape on a wound than go to, and then go about his business, was not one to fuss over injuries. Shane told Austin to sit tight. Before Austin hung up the phone, he told his parents how much he loved them, that he'd always be there for him, he said. His rapidly approaching demise wasn't their fault. He could hear his mother's screams from inside the family home a quarter mile away, followed by the screech of his father's suburban peeling out of the driveway. If he could remain conscious a little bit longer, he told himself, he might be able to say goodbye to them both in person. By the time he'd made it to his son, Shane Riley felt like he'd walked into a gruesome crime scene. Shane's first instinct was to push the tissue back inside Austin's body, as if trying to put his son back together. It was horrible, Shane said. I just knew I needed to get into a hospital as soon as possible. As Shane got into his SUV, Austin was beginning to lose feeling in his hands and feet, a sign that his body was about to go into shock. Emergency responders had instructed the Rileys to wait for their arrival, but Shane refused. After ramming open the front fence with his vehicle, he raced towards Interstate 10 as Gale followed in a second car behind them. At a rendezvous point, paramedics informed the Rileys that they wouldn't be able to ride in the ambulance with their son. His condition was too serious. They told him that they loved him and urged him to keep fighting. Gail dropped to her knees in the middle of the street, overcome by the realization that she might never see her son alive again. The local sheriff arrived to help her out of the road, worried that she'd be hit by a vehicle. Young Shane knew that Austin had already cheated death multiple times in his young life. He prayed to God, asking for another miracle. Austin is special, he said, and everyone who knows Austin knows how tough he is. Doctors would later tell the Riley family that by the time Austin reached University Hospital in San Antonio, 30 minutes away, he'd lost nearly half of his blood. Any more, they assured the relatives, and he would have died. Even more shocking was the fact that Wayland's tusks came within millimeters of severing multiple arteries. It would have taken doctors 10 surgeries to keep Austin alive. Through the official stabbing, though the official stabbing counts at 15, Either Austin nor his doctors could be entirely sure how many times Wayland speared his owner. Some wounds were just too messy to be certain. Now there's no formula for surviving a horrific animal attack. There's even less of a blueprint for getting over an attack in which the victim cared deeply about the attacker. Austin has faced multiple recoveries in his lifetime, but this one has been the hardest. For months after the attack, as Austin recovered from his injuries by working around the ranch, which is still home to about 70 exotic animals, he wouldn't drive past Wayland's old pen in his old train vehicle, much less set foot inside it. For an even longer period, he wouldn't bring up warthogs in conversation and avoided images of the animal online. Still to this day, when I close my eyes, I can see his face covered in my blood. I can't forget his eyes, the way they looked in to kill. Extensive therapy has helped Austin work through this traumatic memory and flashbacks that plague him for the first year after the attack. A part of him now feels grateful for what happened. He, fre- he frequently thanks God that Waylon attacked him instead of one of his family members. He credits the attack with bringing him closer to his then-girlfriend of three months, Kennedy, whom he hopes to someday marry. He is also grateful that he didn't stop fighting, not just because he gave himself another shot at life, but because in a twisted Texas warrior sort of way, he survived an encounter with which animals, with an animal that is built to battle lions. How many individuals can say that? But Austin knows his glory has come at a terrible cost. His mother is tormented by visions of her son being gored to death. His father blames himself for introducing his son to warthogs years earlier. We made a mistake, and we almost paid dearly for it. Shane told me on a recent visit to the ranch holding back tears. The day after the attack, Austin's parents asked for a family friend to execute Waylon. After the killing, Waylon's head was cut off and sent to a lab so he could be tested for rabies. The result came back negative. His slaughter was partly an act of revenge, but also an acknowledgement that the warthog could never be allowed around humans ever again. Shane and Gale deleted all photos of the animal from their phones. Unwilling to be in the presence of a warthog ever again, Austin had Wayland's penmate, Peaches, relocated to another ranch. Recently, 
Austin began walking through the warthog's former pen multiple times each day to feed Daisy, the pot-bellied pig. During our last meeting, he showed me his phone, where he saved hundreds of images and videos of Waylon. He told me it had been a while, but he had finally found himself able to look at some of them again. Gradually, feelings of shock and betrayal are being replaced by acceptance and understanding, he explained. As we looked at sweet-natured pictures of the pig and his owner trading nozzles and belly scratches, I asked Austin if he thinks Waylon regretted attacking him before he was killed. He went silent for a few seconds, mulling over my question before responding, I don't think it was Waylon who attacked me. He said, I was attacked by a warthog. Fucking hell, isn't that an amazing story? Wow. It's, uh, you know, that was a long story, so I'm not going to go too into it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's that America is such a weird place that you can just be an exotic pet guy. You don't need any qualifications for it. I don't think you need many types of permits for it. You can just buy a warthog and breed warthogs. Um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's it's just a great example, though. Like, you know, you can trust domestic animals and they will still occasionally attack you and kill people. Um, but for a wild animal like a warthog, it's heartbreaking for you. Obviously, like, I, I feel so bad for Austin because he's he loves this, this warthog. He loved this warthog. Um, and then it turns around and does something like this. But it's a wild animal. Like, that's... It, who knows what the motive was? Maybe it was like he felt threatened. He thought Austin was going to take his food. Maybe he was trying to, you know, own his territory. But whatever the reason was, it's like it's not that, you know, unexpected, really. Uh, yeah, it's just sad. And then, of course, they, they killed the pig, which is just as sad as well. It makes sense. It couldn't have been around humans ever again. But, like, I mean, the, they were very vengeful people. Is that a Texan thing? I know I have some listeners from Texas. If you're from Texas, would you have done the same thing? Would you have killed the pig? Who knows? Who knows? All right, folks, that is going to do it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to the final part of The Tiger of Chowgar and for talking about uh, Austin and Waylon at uh, quite like long length. Uh, it's been a good episode. It's been a great series about The Tiger of Chowgar. We're going to be back next week with a new uh, series, potentially, or it might be a killer cryptid. We haven't done one of those in a while. I don't know. This is the first time in a month where I'm not sure what the next episode will be, and I'm excited for that. So, what I want you to do, a couple of things before I go. Like and follow the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Give it a good rating. Can you share it with a friend? That's a big thing. I'd love you to share it with a friend. If every one of you shared it with a friend, the audience would double. And then maybe I could do twice as many episodes. That'd be pretty cool, right? Um, Check out the website for merch. Check out all the social media bullshit. Uh, Yeah, check out the Patreon. That's pretty much it. Have a fantastic week, everybody. I love your faces. I love your butts. Oh, I love your butts. And yeah, and I'll see you next week with a new episode. Stay safe, folks, because as we've learned, it's a jungle out there.